You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Dave Zirin is sports editor of The Nation. We have enjoyed talking to him over the years on a number of different subjects. He's got a new documentary, Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. It is tackling football's effects on American culture. You can get the movie now. Any of you listening to this, BehindTheShieldMovie.com is where you go. Uh, Dave, why did you take this project on and thank you by the way for making the time to join us but you you tackle big and substance substantive things you like to tackle race and politics and societal stuff why this is a project to pour yourself into as a documentary uh hey dan great to be here two big reasons why i was like the nfl is going to be my moby dick for the next several years and i'm going to try to be captain ahab and just do my best uh the first was a statistic that i read that over the top 100 of the top 100 programs of the last several years on regular live good old fashioned television 85 of them were nfl games of the top 100 watch shows 85 were nfl games and in the last 15 there are no other sporting events so that just led me to thinking about like the effect that the nfl has on the culture that in a lot of ways it's the closest thing to a national language that we have i mean we are slow so sliced and diced in this society by you know what music we like what sports we like our politics of course yet there's something about this league that attracts this country while at the same time you know kind of repelling a lot of the world so that dynamic I found to be really fascinating. And then the second reason was around everything that occurred with Colin Kaepernick and the athletes in the NFL getting involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, I did a book with Michael Bennett. There was this response that said, why are these athletes bringing politics into the NFL when the NFL for decades has been about as political organization as we have certainly on the pop cultural landscape. And I wanted to sort of expose and discuss the history of politics from above in the NFL, the history of the politics that the league has tried to project, while at the same time trying to deal with the ways that the NFL affects our broader culture. What are the things that you learned that you simply did not know before you started this project? Ooh, I mean, one of the things I learned, and this is certainly, uh, well, I'll say one thing I learned outright, and then one thing that still marvels me. One of the things I learned outright in researching the film is the way that Pete Rozelle, the legendary first commissioner of the National Football League as a combined entity with the AFL, the person who made all the deals with football, the person who created Monday Night Football, the person more responsible for anybody else than anybody else for the role that the NFL has in our society, I'd argue, Pete Rozelle had a political agenda for the league that was constantly shifting, but it was always explicitly political. Like in the 60s, it was about supporting uh, the war in Vietnam and bending the league to that. In the 70s, it was about opening the door for a new generation of black players 
who weren't willing to be sidelined the way previous generations had uh, by everything from a color line in the league to quotas on teams. Um, in the 80s, you know, the, the last reign of, of Goodell, it really was about pushing outward, destroying the USFL and starting to become that hegemonic league. Like I remember growing up, the World Series would routinely uh, kill the NFL in ratings, you know, because it would be fall games in the NFL. You know, that's obviously been flipped on its head right now. So I think that, that's what I learned, like the power of Roselle. And then the thing that I knew and is very appropriate for this discussion today, Dan, is just, you know, I live in D.C. I've lived here almost two decades. The continuity of the ownership of the Washington football team from open, proud racist George Preston Marshall through to Dan Snyder today. Uh, with a little run of Jack Kent Cook in between, but it's just been an Edward Bennett Williams. But from from George Preston Marshall to Dan Snyder, just this run of terrible, awful stewardship that I think it has brought shame to the league in a way that they're right now trying to finally address. What are the politics of the NFL at the moment? Ooh, I mean, it's that's a great question because there's a lot of flux. I mean, because we saw in the mid 2000s quite clearly the politics of the NFL, like we are going to be the shield and the keeper of normality. So Colin Kaepernick, you take a knee, you're not in this league anymore. Other players doing that. Well, guess what? We have a special committee for you to work in. But other than that, just please keep your mouth shut and let's just keep going and making business. Let's keep being like, you know, the former union head, Eric Winston, once said that owning an NFL franchise is like being a bartender during spring break. It doesn't matter how bad you are, you're going to get paid. And so that, that was the approach in the mid 2000s. And then you had this shift take place around the police killing of George Floyd and around that incredible, and I think we don't talk about this enough, that PSA that Patrick Mahomes was in with other players, basically calling out the NFL and saying this league has not done enough. Then you see the end racism in the end zone and things of that nature. And now you're seeing a broader backlash in society and seeing the NFL trying to wind that clock back a little bit because Roger Goodell is constantly reactive. And if you look at what he's reacting to, it's this constant effort to try to be all things to all people uh, in the United States. So, you know, you, you want a league that grows the number of women fans. 47% of fans are women. And then you have Troy Aikman saying people need to take the dresses off and go old school. I mean, these are the kinds of conflicts that the NFL is constantly negotiating uh, at the end of the day for money. You know, police, they call it a, a, the thin blue line. You know, in the NFL, it's really the thin green line. And anybody who threatens that green could find themselves out the door. And that brings it back to Dan Snyder. Well, let's go ahead and stay with Dan Snyder for a second. Since you're an expert in Washington, what have you found most interesting? The average owner in the NFL, this is part of an issue that is not small, has been the owner for 39 years. They stay on average inside of families for 39 years. And so it's going to get, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to make changes when that's the case. But in Washington, he's long survived being the most unpopular sports owner in Washington and one of the most unpopular people in the history of Washington. Absolutely. You know, about a decade ago, I called him uh, George Costanza with hair, uh, with a toupee. I mean, he doesn't have a toupee, but he's got that Costanza approach to life. Like if you gave Costanza a billion dollars, like that kind of like deep 
preying insecurity that's around him at all times, seeing conspiracies around every corner and just being incredibly rude to people that you don't have to be rude to. Like I know people who've worked for that team who have found themselves out of work for making eye contact with Dan Snyder. And that's a, a very common story about how he chooses to operate inside the building. Uh, the things about this report that just came out from Van Nada and Wickersham uh, about what's going on behind the scenes at, about Snyder, two things were really striking to me that, uh, that, I, that I did not know, but that aren't surprising at all. The first is that you know Dan's always been sort of protected by Jerry Jones. That's been his benefactor. The other franchise owners don't like Dan Snyder, but they do love Jerry. And Dan Snyder sort of being Jerry's guy has helped a lot. According to the report, Dan Snyder is no longer Jerry's guy. And that's huge. Uh, the, the second part that, that, that was really striking to me is Snyder's inability, like to have this confirmed, it's something you know we've suspected here, but Snyder's inability to get a new stadium as an NFL owner is almost a shocking brand of incompetence to not be able to get either. And especially for Snyder, because he has three choices. He can go Maryland, he can go DC, he can go Virginia. Republican governor in Virginia, Republican soon to be Democratic uh, governor in Maryland and very Democratic in DC. And he can't, he can't land anywhere. Nobody wants him. He's the one that's toxic, not the NFL. And now they play in FedEx Field, which is the 32nd ranked uh, stadium in the league, according to a recent report. So this idea that the NFL owners have now is like, wow, you know, we divide our money. And Dan Snyder is keeping billions of dollars out of the NFL coffers by his inability to get a new stadium. Someone else could get a new stadium, and that makes him expendable. You mentioned the PSA Mahomes did and it not getting enough attention. I don't know that I've been more surprised by much than that PSA immediately resulting in Roger Goodell getting to microphones as fast as he could and saying, on Kaepernick, we were wrong on everything, never mind, because his black quarterback has put his name on that. That's a great point. And to me, it speaks to this idea of Winning equals money, of course, equals NFL, market share, et cetera. To me, to have Roger Goodell respond so quickly to Mahomes and company was kind of an exposure about how they thought of Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Colin Kaepernick was seen as expendable by the league. Uh, and he was seen as actually having more value as a ghost story than as a quarterback. So more value as somebody who you could go to young players and say, hey, you better you know, be in line, you better do what you say, you better stand by the autocratic system that we have here, um, or else you could find yourself like Colin Kaepernick. They saw value in that, clearly. What they don't see value in is pissing off Patrick Mahomes, especially at that point when Mahomes made that video. And, you know, there's something hopeful in that because the NFL has always been a league that defined you by, you know, the helmet, you know, by players not really necessarily being seen, by, you know, breeding fans and acculturating fans to root for uniforms, not necessarily players, because the average career is, of course, just three and a half years and the injury rate would make that very difficult. But here's Patrick Mahomes, who at that time in particularly coming off the Super Bowl, was such a star that it made him able, it gave him the cultural capital to make an ad like that. And I give him a lot of credit for doing it because there are a lot of people with cultural capital who don't do anything but sit on it or start production studios. And here's Patrick Mahomes doing something different. 
Did it change anything beyond the tone that Goodell used around this? Like, I know, I, I just found that fascinating, that <laughs> it happened that immediately, something the NFL was clinging to quietly and publicly for many years. As soon as Mahomes said something, Goodell, I, I just haven't seen that before. Goodell's like, hey, never mind, we were wrong about everything. We were so very wrong because he realized that he had an employee problem, that his mm -hmm. league is black. He hasn't minded so much when the black customers get offended by everything, but <laughs> as soon as Mahomes did that, I have not seen that kind of change vocally, but I'm not sure if it's not just a change that was vocal. I'm not sure that the politics of the NFL remain the same with a commissioner who was willing to take the publicity hit that hasn't been enduring on, hey, we were wrong about everything. Yeah, there you go. I mean, why does Roger Goodell get paid $60 million a year? Like, what is his value that gets him paid that much? When, like I said before, it's, you know, like Eric Winston said, it's being a bartender on spring break. Anybody's going to get paid. Uh, so what, what makes Goodell so important? Well, he's proven himself to be a brilliant flat catcher. Like, he is the shield. He always talks about the shield. He actually is the shield. He'll take every blow that comes in from popular society as it changes precisely so, so many people in the ownership suites can remain uh, Neanderthals, basically. And that's his job. And so I, I think, you know, I give a lot of credit to Mahomes using his cultural capital. I did that statement ago, but I'd really be remiss if I didn't also mention that, you know, 2020 was the largest set of protests in the history of the United States and it was young. And the NFL knows the existential problem that every sports league suffers from. And that's the fear that this young generation just is not gonna care about sports nearly as enough as their moms and dads and grandparents. You know, they've got so many other entertainment options. And that, that, that's the big fear. You know, baseball has it more than any other for sure. But the, the NFL knows that if it wants to exist into the future, it needs that young generation of fans. And that young generation is more, less tolerant of intolerance and more inclusive than any generation in the history of the United States. And I think Roger Goodell's is well aware of that. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. 
I talk a lot about football. We cover a lot about football. I complain an awful lot about football. And when I complain about football, many people just say, what do you want to do, Lebetard? Kill football? You want to just end football? What am I to do with those complaints? What should my rebuttal be to people who are saying, shut up, Lebetard, about football? We love football. As you said, 85 of the 100 most viewed programs of our lifetime, basically. You're talking about Oprah interviewing Prince Charles is the only thing that you're going to find in there, uh, or Meghan Markle. It's the only thing you're going to find in those hundreds with the football games. What's my rebuttal? You know, or the last episode of MASH, as, as Chris Rock said, never seen white people so upset till the end of MASH. Um, but to, to, I, I think what, we, what I say to people is that I'm not trying to reject football. I'm trying to reclaim it. Uh, this film is very narrowly about the National Football League and what it does to football and how it chooses to use football. And that's what I have a problem with. You know, my, my, my son is a JV quarterback at the local high school here. And I'm very well aware of all the dangers. I talk about concussions in the film and all the rest of it. And believe me, it took a lot of discussion in this house before we let him do it. But he was absolutely obsessed with the thought of playing. And the more I see him and the more I think about it, you know, I'm really not one of those people who says, you know, we need to actually ban the sport. I am one of those people who says that everybody needs absolute informed consent about what they're going into before they play, which for decades players simply did not have on every level. Uh, I see it differently now in terms of how his coach talks to them and whatnot. But to take it to the NFL, I think this is truly a corroded product that is constantly shifting from from scandal to scandal and struggle to struggle and an inability to get ahead of any issue, no matter how foreseen. And I think that's what needs to be reclaimed. Goodell gone. There's a part of me that hopes that Dan Snyder reveals every skeleton in every closet. And we try to do this differently. Am I wrong when I say that even these scandals, crises that they handle poorly or reactionary, that bad publicity isn't actually bad for the NFL, that it's just what fills the infomercials on ESPN and Fox getting you to the next game, that there is no bad controversy, that if Kaepernick being blackballed is something we cluck about, but ratings are higher than they've ever been, that there is nothing that is bad as uh, in terms of publicity uh, because they can survive anything. Right. right, because it's that popular, because when I said before, it's as close to a national language that we have, you know, we like talking about all kinds of things, not necessarily the glory and the good, you know, especially in this day and age. But that's why I think, you know, people who do, you know, the kind of sports commentary that you do, um, and what I'm trying to do very humbly with this film is to say, okay, this conversation exists where everybody wants to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly in the NFL. Can we steer it in a particular direction that actually gets us results for a better and more fair league that isn't so, first of all, parasitic on local communities, and that doesn't use the money that we spend towards their own political ends, independent of what fans or community might think. These are all real issues, particularly the issue of the kind of political money laundering that happens when a billion dollars of public money goes into the pocket of somebody who's already very wealthy and then they use that money as part of their own political project of how they want the country to look. That rings very wrong with me.
The new documentary, Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. Again, if you just want to watch it for free, BehindTheShieldMovie.com, it is available. Tell me about the power part of the power and politics of the NFL. I mean, the power goes way back. There, there are, it goes. I mean, I would trace it back in the NFL to the 1960s when there was a recognition that the league could push people in certain directions, particularly around the culture wars of the 60s. Like it was the football players versus the hippies. It was the National Football League against these people who are trying to upend normality in this country. I mean, there, there were some college campuses where the football team would be called out to actually physically accost protesters on campus, which is crazy if you think about the last 10 years where football players have been leading movements for social justice. That, that's certainly anomalous for how football and the culture of football has operated for decades. It found it, uh, in Richard Nixon that they could have influence on political power, particularly on the Republican side of things. And that over the generations has put us to a point where NFL owners, their spending is nine to one on right-wing causes or the Republican party. And, and the Republican party right now to me is a very scary iteration of itself but that's not stopping them from writing the checks. And where, do these, where does this money come from? It doesn't only come from us, it comes from cities. Um, it comes from things that could be going to libraries, schools, hospitals, what have you. And so the powerful politics of the NFL is that they, through our love of this game, are making this country into their image without any regard about how it affects people, particularly the people who love this game. What do you regard as the least conservative time in the NFL's history as somebody who has studied its oh, history? Oh, I mean, it was, it's what I call the rebel without a cause phase. Um, uh, the 1970s, you know, starting with Joe Namath, you know, with the, you know, with the pantyhose and the sideburns and the fur coats, uh, the NFL realized that, like, wait a minute, we don't have to be the crew cut Johnny Unitas League. We can be a league that lets in, you know, let, lets people fly their freak flag as long as it's devoid of political content. So in the 1970s, you had a lot of a loosening a little bit that allowed players uh, to be able to be themselves in a way that they hadn't before. So the 70s was a huge bridge. And I don't think it's a whole other topic, but I don't think we talk about the 70s enough broadly in sports, the way people like Dick Allen and Reggie Jackson changed the political um, tempo of sports and changed the way athletes were covered, particularly black athletes. And then, of course, this last period of the last five, six years, Dan, I mean, where's it going to go? I don't know. Is it a bit quiet right now? Yes. But the last six years has seen an absolutely unprecedented cultural change. Like in 2014, Brian Flores doesn't even issue that lawsuit, you know, but there's something about this moment that opens the door for him to do that, uh, that has been created wholesale by NFL players over the last half dozen years. Documentaries are exhaustive projects, and I'm going to give you a minute to think about this before we get the fanfare ready to do Dave Zirin's top three most appalling things in his documentary. But you just mentioned, I know public financing of of private entities is something that bothers you all the time. I don't know <laughs> if it will crack your top three, but I want to do this in, dis in, in ascending order. I want to go three, two, one on where you were most personally appalled 
appalled just sort of covering a part of the documentary, doing the research, the reporting, or the stitching together of it. I'm going to go three, two, one. We begin in Behind the Shield, the power and politics of the NFL. Number three most appalled Dave Zirin was with factoids or information about this project. Number three, seeing the old Washington football team, the way they had cheerleaders dress like squaws. Uh, we have a ton of stuff in this documentary about the early days of mascotting with the Washington football team. And I thought I was familiar with this stuff. It, it, it's an ugly business, Dan. Like the Washington football team was the most southernmost team. It was before the days of Florida franchises in Texas. And they were marketing themselves to Dixie like they were marketing uh, Big Macs to public school kids. I mean, they were going all in to, to win that Dixie dollar. And I didn't realize the extent of it and how that frankly still stains the league. Thank you. <laughs> Number two. Oh, I'm, I'm already like dreading number one because it's so it's it's not going to be a ta-da kind of thing. Although well, it number three wasn't either, to be honest. That's why it was no. funny to play the sound. I know. Ta-da. <laughs> um, number two, uh, the, the, the Kaepernick blackballing and not because I have some grand concern for the financial future of Colin Kaepernick, but I really felt like that was a very chilling moment for this country. This idea that you can believe what you want to believe, but you might not have a job by 5 p.m. That Because the NFL is so powerful, the ripple effect of something like that, I thought was particularly ugly. Look at him. He drops his head into his hands. I don't know where Whittingham was. He was a little slow there. Number one, finally. Oh, we'll see how I'm hurting a little bit on number one. <laughs> well, uh, well, okay. We will preface it by saying this is probably awful because you are being asked what is the most appalling thing in the history of the NFL? My guess is it's going to be pretty appalling. My promise on at parties, I'm quite amusing. I swear I'm not trapping you in the corner, telling you everything that's terrible about the world. Um, the number one thing, and this is partly because I've gotten to know the family over the last 15 years, was how the NFL handled the death of Pat Tillman. <laughs> <laughs> just, and this was so wrong. I didn't even mean to I did not even mean to <laughs> laugh and I couldn't I couldn't help it. I wanted to sit it out silently. But no, that I, I get appalled when I saw that Super Bowl commercial, Dave, I couldn't believe it that yeah. they, that they tried to dress up that horror and put it in a commercial on the Super Bowl when yeah. what I remember is uh you know Tillman's brother at the funer funeral, at the eulogy, saying to everybody, hey, save your prayers. He's not in a better place. He's just dead, and the government covered it up. Yeah, the government covered it up, and the NFL uh, played a role in that cover-up. That, that's what repulsed me the most, is you know having this kind of celebration around Pat that also sold a myth about how he, in fact, died. He was killed by, quote-unquote, friendly fire, although there are questions about that. And but they made it sound like it was, as his mother put it, a John, his mother, Mary, who's terrific, uh, that has put it a John Wayne movie. Um, and that that was disgusting. They exploited him in death that Pat Tillman refused to be exploited in that way in life. So th that to me is the ugliest thing that the NFL has ever done, because Pat Tillman did not want to be G.I. Joe, but they made him G.I. Joe once he couldn't protest it.
Why do customers not seem to care about these things? Uh, because objectively, and I've gotten in some trouble for saying this because people disagree, but objectively, this is, an, an, <laughs> this is a really exciting product. I mean, I don't think there's any way to get around that, that this sport was made for television in a way that no other sport was. You don't see popularity in the NFL before the 50s and 60s. Uh, and that's because the number of people with TVs in this country grew by like 80% over the course of that decade as they became more affordable. Because every time they throw the ball, we don't know what's gonna happen. You know, it's like you, you, t you catch your breath a little bit. Like watching live is to me so secondary to watching it on TV. And I think people tune in for that very purpose. There's a thrill of the violence. There's a thrill of the Americana. And there's a thrill in the game. And that's proven to be a very, very lusty potion. You've gotten in trouble for the take that football is exciting? Yes, I have. Because there are people who are, are rejectionists. And they say, why, is the, why do people love this sport? Well, it's because Americans are bloodthirsty. Americans are violent. Americans like the, the, the cheerleaders, like everything that's negative uh, that people feel about this country, they, they, they put into NFL football. And, and I, I reject that idea. I think there's a lot of good there. Uh, we just have to not reject it, but reclaim it. What else do you put at the top of the list along with made for television and television in general uh, reasons for football's success or primary reasons for it being popular in a way that no other sport has ever been because baked into the cake of this sport is this idea of success three feet at a time one yard at a time pushing forward settling land in front of us i mean the story of football is the story of this country and people in this country love nothing more than identifying with the mythos of this idea that this is a land that had very little going for it until Europeans arrived and turned it into this modern paradise. I think that the NFL tells that story every single Sunday in a way that people really identify with. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That sounds like a lot of hooey. It sounds symbolically uh, thought out, like I wish I'd had the thought myself, but I, when they bring out the chains and measure kind of randomly, I'm not thinking to myself, man, this goes back to uh, slaughtering the Native Americans and real estate acquisition. Yeah, I mean, and, and, the, and the trains, let's not forget the trains. Um, but it, it's something that's, that's not so much this conscious thing. When I'm watching, I'm not like, yeah, that's how we got Louisiana. You know, like I'm not saying that either i picture that that is what you're actually doing I that reminds me of the louisiana purchase it does oh god i swear i'm more fun than this dan um but but i do think that like baked into the cake of this sport is a kind of american exceptionalism and that we intuit more than we necessarily think it in our conscious mind and i think that's that's pretty pervasive and it's the reason why we can understand the sport's lack of popularity throughout the rest of the world. How good is America at exporting culture? We're amazing at it. 
but we can't export our most popular cultural artifact. I cannot tell you the number of times in my living room I have dramatically made a first down gesture and just shouted, yeah, James Madison. <laughs> I, 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 I do that all the time, but only when I'm watching James Madison University, a fine football program. How else do you think that football represents America? I think it represents America in a big way because th there is a love of physical contact in this country. And vi there's very little places where violence, I mean, you've got MMA, boxing is a joke in terms of national popularity, which is a shame because uh, boxing is at its best can be amazing. But, you know, there's something about feeling a sense of national identity with a sport that also has this incredible physical conflict, which I do also think is irresistible. I mean, I, I really do think, like we joked before about like the last episode of MASH or whatnot, you know, there, there is something that people feel fortified by having a nationally unified cultural experience. And the NFL is, I think, the last game in town that offers something like that, other than a national election. Isn't it also, though, because it's when a lot of people are off for the weekend and you can do it kind of bite-sized, uh, you can do it 17 times a year, it doesn't require the investment that the other sports require of your attention, of your intellect. It, it They're giving you it in the right dosages and we can't ever get enough of it. I mean, it's not James Madison. I'm really disappointed. Well, I love um, the idea. I do love the idea of... <laughs> Real estate acquisition through violent means is absolutely what football is. Yes, you said it much more clearly than I did, but I think people love that. That's why people love fantasy football. It's the identification with management that is, is so, I think, seductive to people. It's played in this house. My son plays it. It doesn't thrill me, but it's this idea that you are in charge of the players. And if someone gets hurt, the backup tight end gets hurt on Tampa Bay, that matters to you. Even if you're a Ravens fan, it provides a national scope when baseball we see more and more becomes like a regional operation. Do you have a theory for me on why it is? And I've wondered about this for a while. It tends to be that the customer sides with management instead of labor, even though the customer is most often labor instead of management. It seems to me that the customer very often wants their team run by the drill sergeant disciplinarian that they themselves would never want to have as a boss. Why? Uh, wow. Um, people love the league. I mean, I don't need to tell you this, Dan, like, like so, so woven into how we've understood sports in the last generation and frankly, so woven into how athletes, particularly black athletes have been treated since the days of Jack Johnson is this idea of gratitude. Like you see it in the descriptions of Jack Johnson, first black heavyweight champion, why people uh, despised him. It was this absence of gratitude, this absence of appreciating the fact that he got paid a ton of money for the purposes of playing a game. And I think that's remained very pervasive. It's certainly affected white athletes as well. It's gotten baked into the cake of sports instead of people taking a step back from it and saying, well, wait a minute, this is a job. It's a union job. It's a high injury job. Tamora Smith has this line where he says it's the only job that has a 100% injury rate and that the labor itself deserves respect. If I could, I just want to really quote former NFL player Brian Mitchell. There's this great line where he says, 
a, a cook once asked him, why do you get paid so much more than I do? And Brian Mitchell said, look, you cook a steak for your, for, for, for your salary in football. I'm both the cook and the steak. And I think that's where uh, people don't, un, people lose the plot a little bit and don't quite understand the degree to which their bodies are the product of their labor and the destruction of their bodies is also the same. Do they care though? Because the number of people who have told me that I'm overreacting to the Tua thing and, hey, they know the risks. You, you used a phrase earlier that we were talking, uh, uh, informed consent, because now football players do have a better idea than they've ever had of what the risks are. But that's a product of the last 10 years and the NFL being big tobacco about making sure they didn't know what the risks were. No, absolutely correct. Um, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that when you're talking about fans, I mean, it, it's just, I, I think this goes back to the fantasy football discussion. There's something about football that really does breed an identification with management, with coaching. The players are seen as interchangeable. You're rooting for laundry and it creates an, an absence of the kind of respect that I think players would need to actually win a strike because without massive fan support, I mean, especially given the short tenure of careers and the number of people who want those careers, it makes labor progress very difficult. I've always been someone who thought Demora Smith was unduly uh, criticized for running the union because that is a very, very tough hand. This film tries to tackle football's effects on American culture. What are some of football's other effects that we have not covered here on American well, culture? Well, the one thing that I, th I think is fascinating is how the NFL shapes uh, masculinity and shapes what our understandings are of what is weakness and what it means to be weak. And you heard it in Aikman's comments about, oh, they should be wearing dresses or whatnot. But this idea that, and this is why the concussion protocols are never gonna work, really, because what is so deep, deeply, deeply ingrained in the sport um, is two things. One, the idea that you never admit injury, and two, this idea about mental health and admitting that you have issues with mental health, only beginning are we beginning to see that crack a little bit and players being open about this. And I, I remember one team, I wish I could remember the team, but they mandated for people on the team to see a therapist, but they made it because they thought it would help to team improvement, but they decided to call it mental enhancement instead of therapy because mental enhancement sounds manly and it's about winning games, but mental health, I mean, forget about it. I found interesting that as people in sports try to have an open and vulnerable conversation about mental health, that the entire pipeline of what football players are choosing to do for a living, I would argue, mm. is a mental health minefield. All of it. That you talk about baked into the cake, you are walking into an environment unlike Andrew Hawkins was on with us last week and told us that these are the toughest people in the world, that there is no one tougher than football players because the furnace that they go into where 
other guys are competing for money and other guys know that they're the cook and the steak too, that the whole thing is a, a mental health challenge, that mental toughness doesn't even begin to describe what you have to have in order to survive and excel in that world. Well, now you're getting to the discussions in my own home about whether my son should be quarterback on this on our local at our local public school, because the first thing my, my wife and I asked each other is, OK, what, what's wrong in his life that he wants to do this? Like what is happening to him that makes him want to do this? What makes him want to hit and be hit? And uh, that those, those are difficult discussions to have. I mean, I. I I, I think that some of it has to do with just the incredible glorification of the game. Some people just absolutely love the sport and some people just really love to hit and it provides space for them to do that. I remember reading this and if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm, I hope I don't get sued, but the great New England Patriots uh, uh, offensive lineman, John Hanna, I'm going back a few decades. Uh, he was found by his family just running over and over again into his garage door uh, because of a kind, a kind of physical missing of the contact itself. Michael Bennett talked about this in the book we did together. And it, it, it's pretty, it can be harrowing stuff the way your body gets used to this idea of contact. The other thing about mental health, I just want to throw this in there, is I don't think it's a coincidence that you've finally seen the league talk about it as it's been revealed that CTE can affect your mental health. So it becomes something that they can link to the physical pain. Then it's okay to talk about it when, for all you know, a person might need therapy because of much more deep-rooted issues. Darnell Dockett, the former defensive tackle who found his mother murdered at a very young age, I believe it was in his kitchen, can give you all of the awful details. He said he loved to play football because it was the only place that he could legally put all of that aggression, that that was mm -hmm. that he enjoyed the physicality of being able to do that without consequences that were illegal. Yeah. And it's, it's just, to me, also not surprising that in a society as emotionally constipated as ours that people would actually need that. When you say, what is wrong with my son, or when you have that conversation with your wife, I've mentioned before that in the Coliseum, the original gladiators, they used to be inmates and prisoners and um, just uh, people who didn't have a choice, but eventually, because of the glory... They mm -hmm. got all sorts of volunteers. That's, I think that's what's happening now. I don't know whether that happens as young as your son's age, but what conclusion did you come to when you had these conversations about what, what have we done wrong? What's wrong that he wants to play football? Like, I don't know that a lot of parents would go there with my son wants to play football. Yeah, we went there. Uh, my wife's a public school teacher, so it's like all the time. It's like where we're talking about the psychology of teenagers and what we can do just to help him survive this difficult time in his life because it ain't easy. I mean, for us, what it came down to was that he came out of the pandemic with a passion to do this. You know, after a year and a half of doing remote schooling and he's always been a good athlete, he was like, forget basketball, forget baseball. This is what I want to do. And I'm willing to do this hours a day. And then he just started practicing, 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 um, getting in touch with the coaches, uh, figuring out how to change his body, like lifting weights in the basement. And as a parent, particularly in an age where a lot of kids, you know, barely have the energy to play video games, as a parent, to see your kid that passionate about doing something, 
it's just extremely difficult to stand in their way. You kind of have to support it, don't you? You do if you want to have a relationship with your kids. <laughs> I mean, you do. And also it's like this idea of supporting passion, I think, is the most important part of being a parent. Um, especially, I mean, let's, let's be frank, like statistics about how teenagers do are doing right now is not great. So if there's something that actually makes them happy and is, it involves exercise and it involves being social, it's like, it's, it's kind of like the facts of life. You take the good, you take the bad. It's a lot worse than not great though, Dave, you, you've read the loneliness and suicide rates among young people. Yeah. You have, you have read what social media has done to disconnect children who think somebody else's life is better than theirs. Uh, I mean, kids, kids are in peril today for reasons that have nothing to do with football. Exactly. And, he, and he's happy doing this, um, in a sea of kids who are unhappy. So we're sticking with it. And if he gets a concussion, we'll, he knows this, we'll have a meeting and figure out what to do next. What do you regard as the most interesting things in your documentary? I will tell the people again, BehindTheShieldMovie.com is where you can go if you want to watch Zyron's work. It's all worth following. He's the nation's sports editor. He's written a number of good books. Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL is the name of the book, is the name of the documentary, first, excuse me. First, what I, what I promise people is that it's entertaining as hell. Uh, the people at the Media Education Foundation, uh, who are the producers of it, put together a ton of clips to make our point. We got old footage, we got old NFL films footage. I mean, we got incredible, incredible stuff. And maybe the NFL will sue us, but I think we're good under fair use. Supreme Court has said, if you're commenting culturally, you're good to go. So hopefully that'll be the case. Although if they sue us, then I get to come on shows and say, see the film the NFL doesn't want you to see, which could be fun. Um, <laughs> if they notice that it exists. Um, and and the, the, so the part I find most exciting is just the pace and tempo and highlights of the film itself. And the thing that really throws people a curve is that it, it's a rough film. Like we go through the bad and the ugly, but then we end on the good, which was this, this, this generation of players who just seem like they're not going to put up with it anymore. So it's usually you go the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, Eastwood, Van Cleef, Eli Wallach. We went Van Cleef, Eli Wallach, Eastwood. The name of the documentary is the film the NFL doesn't want you to see if they know it exists. It yes. is by <laughs> Dave Zirin and a team of others. Dave, thank you. Always appreciate the time. Always appreciate the work. No, thank you so much. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.